Um, you guys should already have your Bibles open up to Mark chapter 12. That's where we're going to be, Mark chapter 12. Uh, like I said, we've been in this gospel for quite some time, um, and we've got a handful of weeks or a handful of months actually left in this great book. Um, I'm going to read a passage today, beginning about verse 13, going down about verse 17. It's a passage that some of us are probably familiar with. On the surface, it looks like the issue has to do with taxes. Uh, should we pay taxes and so on and so forth? Uh, but there is actually an issue underneath the issue that we really want to try to tackle and really try to understand. And uh, in simple, short order, um, just kind of set the stage as to where we're at, where we've come. Uh, what's happening right now in the Gospel Mark is everybody wants Jesus dead. Everybody. The religious leaders want Jesus dead. The civil leaders want Jesus dead. And ultimately what we're going to see is they will get their wishes but at the end of the day, what we're going to see are ultimately many different ways in which they're conspiring together to get Jesus put to death. And that's what we're seeing here take place within this passage. So I'm going to read it, we'll pray, then we'll get to work in this uh, great little section here. Verse 13 says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And then they came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you don't care about anybody else's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly you teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one to him. And then he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is in this? And they said to him, It's Caesar's. Jesus then said to them, Render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And they all marveled at him. God, we ask this morning that you help us to understand what this whole passage is all about because, God, obviously the people that were there who heard Jesus were all absolutely in amazement of him. God, that's where we want to go today. It's where we want to head. It's where we want our hearts to be. We don't want just merely a Bible study where our minds are simulated. God, we want to have hearts that are absolutely in amazement of Jesus. So we just commit this morning in your hands. We pray for your help, and we ask these things in his name. Amen. In short, what I want to do this morning is I want to really try to understand the issue beneath the issue that Jesus is dealing with. So again, in short, what we saw is that Jesus is now sort of the subject of attack. People are trying to figure out a way to trap Jesus to get him uh, to say something, to speak something that's ultimately going to get him in trouble, either by way of losing the popularity of the mass populace of people or by getting himself into some sort of trap where he's going to get in trouble with the civil, uh, the civil um, order. Um, the religious leaders, they don't have the authority to kill Jesus. They can't actually just go right out and kill Jesus, although they are plotting and figuring out ways behind the scenes to kill Jesus. Um, so what they're basically trying to do is get Jesus trapped. And so that's what we, in essence, see taking place within the story here. And so they come to Jesus asking Jesus a question, and on the surface it looks like it's a question of taxes. In reality, it's not a question about taxes. It's really a question what I would describe as more so about loyalties, it's a question of Jesus, who are you loyal to? Who do you belong to? Who are you faithful to? Who are you committed to? That's the real question beneath the question. But what Jesus is going to ultimately do is going to take the question that's posed to him, he will turn it upside down and back at them and in essence ask them, who are you loyal to? Who are your, where do your loyalties lie? <clears throat> what I want to do before we even jump into this, I really want to just point out that all of us, every single one of us in this room right now, have something of which we're loyal to. 
there's some sort of ideal, some sort of philosophy, some sort of uh, religious background, some sort of political agenda, some sort of cause that drives us. We're all loyal to something, somebody, some idea, some concept, some philosophy. Whatever we're loyal to has some element of authority over our lives. The Bible would describe that ultimate supreme type of authority or ideal in which we give ourselves over to as basically being a form of idolatry. Meaning, even though we may not necessarily see ourselves getting on our hands and knees and offering worship and praise to some other ideal or concept or person, what we're doing is we're in essence saying this ideal, this idea, this philosophy, this religion holds my attention. It's what I give my money to. It's what I give my attention to. It's what I give my observation to, my thoughts to. All my time, treasure, and talents goes to these specific things. And in turn, we expect those things of which we're loyal to to give us something back. They'll give us peace. They'll give us tranquility. They'll give us a sense of security. They'll give us a sense of hope. All of those things somehow promise something to us, and that's why we devote our loyalty to them. The problem is, is none of those things have full, ultimate power and ability to give us what they promise. So what I've said before many, many times in the past is that this is really the basis of all idolatry. This is one of the reasons why God says very carefully, don't worship any other God besides me. Because God knows, intrinsically, that whatever we give our attention to, our our loyalties to, our heart to, that thing will ultimately determine how strong or how fragile your life is. I've said this before. Whatever it is that you put your ultimate faith, hope, confidence, and loyalty in, you are either as strong as that thing or as fragile as that thing. I'll give you an example. If you're a girl and you have a boyfriend and your hope of a boyfriend or you're a girl and you're married and your hope of having a husband or one day hopefully having a child, your hope somehow placed in that boyfriend, husband, or child, there are certain expectations that you desire to be given to you from that loyal hope and anticipation you have in that. You hope to be given peace. You hope to have rest. You hope to have some sense of joy and completion and wholeness. And at some point, it will fail you. It will let you down. So when it lets you down, when it breaks, you'll break with it. When it's secure, you'll be secure, but that's got a time limit on it. There is an expiration date on it. You didn't see the expiration date because it's very fine print, but the point of the matter is, is that everything in this life that we put our hope in, our confidence in, we expect something from that thing at some point, unless it's God, it will let you down. This is why God, again, is very clear. Don't worship any other God other than me. Because every other God will let you down. Every other God is frail. Every other God is fragile. I'm not, God would say. I don't break. I don't fracture. I don't fall apart like every other false God. So the religious leaders ask Jesus the question of loyalties. Who are you loyal to? Jesus turns the question back on them. Who are you loyal to? And there's essentially three things that we'll be taking a look at here in the passage. One, I want to take a look at a question of loyalties. We'll take a look at specifically the question and how they phrase the question of loyalties to Jesus. The second thing, we'll take a look at the clarifying of loyalties. In other words, Jesus will sort of rightly outline for us. He'll differentiate between different levels and layers of uh, various types of loyalties. The uh, third and final thing, we'll basically take a look at how do we rearrange these loyalties? How do we rightly order them? 
Those are the three, three things that we'll be taking a look at. Again, first of all, the question of loyalties. Second, we'll take a look at, in essence, the clarifying of loyalties, trying to rightly discern and understand different types of loyalties. And thirdly, how do, how do we rightly order our loyalties so that they don't crush us when they break? So the first thing, we'll take a look at a question of loyalties, and we see this in the first few verses, in verses 13 or so to 15. We see basically the Pharisees and these Herodians, they come to Jesus, and we're told that they've come to him to trap him. So on the next slide, what you'll see is the picture, this idea, the picture of uh, Herodians as well as the Pharisees. I want to take a look at each of these groups very quickly. The Herodians were as a group of people that were basically political leaders, these for the most part probably Jews, that were working for Herod. Now, some of you may not be familiar with uh, the, the history of Israel, first century, so I'll give you a really brief breakdown of it. Um, prior to Jesus coming on the scene, uh, Rome, for the most part, was underneath uh, the leadership of a dynasty called um, Herod. Herod was, a, you know, basically a pretty wicked guy. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. He was not a very good guy. Uh, you know, if you're familiar with maybe some of the architecture of the ancient world, Herod was a massive egotist. He loved to build things, not just build things, but he loved to build massive things. In fact, if you go to Israel today, um, there are all sorts of structures still standing to this day from 2000 or so years ago, built by Herod. It's absolutely amazing what this guy was able to do. Well, when Herod, Herod died, he had several sons and whatnot that he basically divided his kingdom, in, his kingdom into. And uh, what happened was prior to even Herod coming, the Romans, uh, the Romans came onto the scene. And what the Romans did is they basically hired Herod and his sons ultimately to basically be sort of a presence of Rome in the Middle East. So even though Rome didn't have a Caesar working out of Jerusalem or out of the region of Israel, Rome hired this guy by the name of Herod to basically oversee all of the transactions, all of the you know, business that was needed to go on for Rome there. And they formed a group of people called the Herodians. These are people that were loyalists to Herod, which ultimately were loyalists to Rome. The second group of people that we see here were the Pharisees. These are people that actually really looked at anybody who was not a Jew and saw them as heretics. Or they looked at anybody that was not uh, loyal to the Torah as essentially heretics. So just by that being alone, uh, what type of relationship would you imagine the Pharisees would have with the Herodians? Well, as you would imagine, these two people absolutely hated each other. Um, the Herodians would have viewed the uh, Pharisees as religious, religious fanatics, the Pharisees would have viewed the Herodians as sellouts, completely just separated for, from God and as just worthless sellouts. And so these two people, for the most part, would have been pol at polar opposites. In some ways, it kind of would have been like the way that we see it in some ways today, where you have you know, the religious right, you have the liberal left, you have uh, blue states, red states, you have Democrats, Republicans. These two parties don't really generally see eye to eye on anything. And yet, what we see here are these two parties actually coming together for one specific purpose, because both of them actually hate Jesus. Both of them are looking for a way to somehow trap Jesus to get him into a place where he could say something that would get him into trouble. And the whole issue that they come to Jesus over, in terms of this question of loyalties, has to do with what's called the poll tax. So they bring to Jesus, or ask Jesus this question, Jesus, what do you think we should do about the taxes? It's a very important question give you guys a little bit of history again, broader about with regard to this. So when Rome took over, what typically Rome would do is when they would go into a territory or into an area, they would build roads. They would basically take the road systems that were already there and they would make them 
really well, make them professional, make them look really good. They would establish uh, military might in various cities as a way of basically saying, this belongs to Rome. And so it was the common people that lived in those towns that paid the taxes on funding Rome and all of the ventures that Rome was about to do. Now, you would imagine, like I said, if, for example, we've said this in, in the past, like what would happen if Canada came over and invaded America, came all the way down to California, and they occupied California? We wouldn't be too happy about that, right? But let's say on top of that, they're like, oh, by the way, we're here, we brought hockey and mullets to America, you're welcome. We want to tax you on that now, because you guys have the benefit of having the skullet, and we want to bless you with this, so in turn, you have to give us taxes. We'd be like, we don't like hockey, and we really hate that haircut, why do we have to do this? Because we're here. So it's a sort of a forced occupation, nobody likes this occupation, but you're forced to do it because... They have the power. They have the military might. So you can imagine this is what was happening. Um, there are all sorts of different types of taxes that the first century Jews had to pay. This was not a tariff. That was just sort of a, a, a tax that was paid off of goods and services in terms of import-exporting. This was not an income tax. It was a tax that was levied off of the top of what you made. This was a tax called a poll tax, and this was a tax that everybody had to pay first, uh, first century just because you were part of the Roman citizenship. Now, you may not have actually been a Roman citizen, but because you lived in a Roman-occupied territory, you get to pay the tax. Now, you imagine, like I said, you, don't, you didn't ask for the occupation, you didn't want the occupation, and now they're levying a tax from you. Popular tax or non-popular tax? Totally non-popular. Nobody liked this tax, but they were forced to pay this. So the question, again, from the religious leaders to Jesus is, in essence, should we pay the tax? Yes or no? This is a really, really strategic type of a question that they're asking. Because what we're, we're told very clearly that they had an intention in mind to trap Jesus. Which means the word that's used there is the idea of like trapping a bear. All right? Now, if you're going to trap something, like a bear, uh, you're going to want to try to hide the trap so that others can be able to see it or a bear can see it. You wouldn't have a trap out there in the open with a big neon sign that says, paw here, like you would try to cover it up, put leaves over it, do something somehow that would entice the bear, lure the bear into the trap so that you could catch it. This is what they were doing to Jesus. They were trying to trap Jesus by setting him up and then ultimately getting him to answer the question. So here's the thing. If Jesus supported the tax, meaning if Jesus would have answered the question straight up and been like, yeah, we should pay the taxes, it's great, then he would have ultimately risked alienation from the, religious, or from the other people, the common people that were following Jesus. By this point, Jesus had a following of hundreds, perhaps thousands of people that were following Jesus. And if Jesus would have said, yes, pay tax, then this perhaps could have started some form of a riot. Because all of these people that were looking at Jesus had hopes that Jesus was actually going to be the Messiah. And at worst, or I should say at best, they would have been confused. Because in their mind, they would have thought, wait a minute, if you're the king and the king is a political king, and the political king is going to come to remove the oppression of Rome off of us, why would you support the tax? We're confused. At worst, it would ultimately incite a riot. Because they would have been like, we expect you to be the king. Kings don't you know, succumb and give homage to Rome by way of paying these horrible taxes. They would have, if Jesus would have done that, he would have risked marginalizing and alienating the people that were following him. Secondly, if Jesus would have denounced the tax, immediately the religious leaders would have, you know, 
like phoned up the Herodians and other people in high places who have been like, ah, yes, we got Jesus now because he just said that we don't have to pay taxes. Jesus is guilty of sedition, meaning he is sort of this rebel leader that's out to basically start and form his own movement that's a counter-Rome movement, and therefore we can kill him. So either way, Jesus is in really deep trouble no matter how he answers, so they thought. But they're dealing with Jesus. Jesus is pretty smart. So here's what, typically, what ends up basically happening here in the story. And Jesus now begins to clarify their loyalties. Now again, remember, it starts off by, in essence, them poising the question of Jesus, who are you loyal to? Are you loyal to Rome, the kingdom of Rome, or are you loyal to the kingdom of God? That's really the question. Who are you loyal to? Where do your loyalties lie? And so what we then begin to see, the second thing, uh, around verse 15, Jesus then clarifies his loyalties. In other words, he orders them rightly. So what Jesus does is he says, bring me a denarius, and then he begins to ask the question, whose likeness and inscription is on it? Take a look at the next slide, and I want to show you kind of a picture of a denarius. This was actually a Roman coin. It was probably from, minted from around the time of, I don't know, 15 or so to like 30, somewhere around there. So something like this would have been the type of coin that, that they would have been talking about, that Jesus would have been talking about. So Jesus basically says, bring me a coin. I'll get more to that in just a second as to why Jesus may not have had a coin in his pocket. And then they bring the coin to Jesus. Jesus asks a simple question. Okay, there's an inscription in it. What does the inscription say? Is Jesus' simple question to the people that are watching. And obviously their answer is, well, it's Caesar's depiction in the coin. What's, what's important to note about this, that in all ancient empires, and even in modern empires, anytime a tyrant or a dictator or a leader or an emperor takes over an area, they would oftentimes do something as minimal as raising a flag or as advanced as maybe erecting a large statue. Oftentimes, as they would begin to take over territory, they would then begin to change out the money. They would then begin to mint coins with the, new, with the impression of the new leader. Uh, you know, one of the iconic images of the past, you know, 15 years or so was when, uh, you know, America basically with the allies went into Iraq and there was that one big iconic picture where they were pulling down the statue of Saddam Hussein. In other words, they were basically saying in that statement, Saddam does not rule here anymore. Doesn't belong to him anymore. This is not his territory. He's not king anymore. Anytime a king comes into a new territory, he would erect statues, establish the minting of coins, raise a flag, and basically his way of doing this was in essence saying, this territory belongs to me. The money and the currency belongs to me. The people belong to me. The land belongs to me. The loyalties of the people ought to belong to me. I'm their new king. I'm their new sovereign. I'm their new lord. And this is basically what happened back in Jesus' day. And so you'd imagine when, when Rome came in, and had sort of established the leadership over the people of Israel. This was a, this was a completely nationalistic group of people, the, the, Israel, the Jewish people were. They longed for, looked forward to the day when God would one day give them back their land, and they can worship God the way that they wanted to worship God, and they would have a king after the lineage and the order of King David, and they would be free. Right now, the Israels hated the fact that they had to pay these taxes because it was a blow against their nationality. To take it a little bit further, you got to take a look at the inscriptions that are on the coin. Now, obviously, I can't imagine any of you guys speak Latin. I don't. But um, on the coin is sort of this inscription. 
on the front side of the coin that has the picture of the head, it basically says Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus was sort of like the main Caesar, and he had sons. What had happened was during the time of Jesus, sort of the beginning stages of what they would call the Roman cult. What that means is at some point, the Roman um, officials, the Caesars, basically became deified as God. It essentially started out as the Caesars were like representatives of God, and then it kind of morphed slowly into the worship of the Caesars, where they were basically viewed as God. So Tiberius, uh, he would have been the son of Caesar. And if Caesar at this point is the divine, meaning he is the God, then that would mean that Tiberius Caesar is the son of God. That's what the coin says. Tiberius Caesar, the son of God, meaning he is the king of all kings throughout the entire region. On the back side of the coin is another image or raised relief of this picture of a woman sitting on a chair with a you know, palm branch in her hand. And basically right there it says Pontus Maxim um, or Pontifus Maximus in other translations. Basically, what that means is high priest. So Tiberius Caesar, or the Caesar that is the now ruling governor, leader over all of Rome and all over all Roman um, you know, areas and territories and provinces, this guy, Tiberius Caesar, has sole authority, sole claim, or so he thought, over all the people, over all the regions, because he was the son of God, he was the king of kings, he was the high priest. So, okay, take it a step further. If you are a good Jew, you love Yahweh. You love Yahweh with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. And you look forward to God coming again. God coming by way of sending a king. Um, Good Jews did not carry around these coins. There's one strategic reason why good Jews refused carrying around these coins. Any guesses? Any guesses? This is like participation time. What's that? You, I didn't hear it, so. Any guesses? Blasphemy. Why is it blasphemy? It's calling him God. It's definitely part of it. Anybody else? It has to do with a direct violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Idolatry. A graven image. This is a graven image. Good Jews were like, we would never carry that. And so for them, they're like, struggling with it. We don't want to pay the tax because not only that is we don't like the tax, but we hate the fact that on the very coinage is an inscription of a false deity, of someone that we don't give our authority to. We don't give our loyalties to. We don't love him. We don't serve him. We don't honor him. We don't respect him. We see the coin itself as blasphemy. So they, they, they wouldn't carry it around. That's why Jesus is like, does anybody have a coin? I would imagine. It's kind of funny. It's like setting. I almost kind of see the irony here. Here's Jesus like, oh, by the way, does anybody have a coin? Some of the Pharisees are like, oh, yeah, right on. I got one right here. Like, oh, you do? Like, gosh, you know, I thought you were the religious leader. You know, you had this coin in your pocket. It's not good. Anyways, <laughs> that might hit you on the way home. I don't know. But the point of the matter is, is that what takes place here is they give Jesus this coin, and then Jesus asks them this question, whose image is on the coin? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. And here's what Jesus says. Give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar's. In other words, Caesar has his image on this coin. He has his image, his imprint on this coin. And this is what's in circulation. Give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, yes, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. I mean, Caesar has carved out roads for you. He's provided military strength for you. There are certain elements about social government that are really good. In fact, Paul would say, I think it's in Romans 13, he actually describes government as 
the deacon of God, the servant of God. He actually uses the word deacon. No, most of us have never thought like, oh, yeah, government is a deacon. It is a servant of God to carry out justice in a society and a culture for us. I'm not going to go into that too deep, but the point of the matter I would make is this, is that Jesus is saying, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but Jesus doesn't stop there, and he then goes on, and give to God what belongs to God. So what Jesus is doing here, basically, is he's clarifying the loyalties. He's differentiating between the different types of loyalties. That it's okay to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So give to Caesar what rightfully belongs to him, but don't give to Caesar what belongs to God. Honor Caesar, but don't honor Caesar as if he is the ultimate dignitary to be honored. That ultimate form of veneration, honor, and worship and respect isn't to be given to a man, even if his name is Caesar. It's to be given to God. Then Jesus says, give to God the things that belong to God. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where God says that he created man in his image. In mankind, God created mankind with God's image in them. Let me put it this way. Every single one of us here in this room bear the image of God. The problem oftentimes in our society is that we misdiagnose many of the problems and the ills and the issues and the society problems, woes and whatnot. We misdiagnose them. So what we, have, what we typically see, especially within this time of year, it's an election year, this is when all of the vicious people put their teeth in, they begin to bite. It's where all the liberals come out, and they're like, the real problem are the Democrats, or the Republicans, I should say. They're the real problem. And then you got the Republicans, like, oh, the real problem are the Democrats. And everybody's fighting, fighting back and forth, going over each other, going past each other. And oftentimes, we love to try to, as much as we can, simplify it and say, well, the problem just simply boils down to there's not enough um, education in the society, there's not enough money in the society, there's not enough... Uh, entrepreneurial growth within a society, what we need are more jobs. These are the systemic problems that basically destroy our culture. And you have all these different ideologies and loyalties to these ideologies that oftentimes keep people fighting back and forth and never getting really uh, to the heart of the real issue or the heart of the real problem. But the Bible is going to say that the problem is far more comprehensive and far more nuanced than we've ever even imagined. And the real problem, the Bible says, is sin. The real issue, the issue beneath the issue, the reason why our loyalties are so clouded and so messed up and never really ever get to the true heart of the problems is because sin fails to ever get really truly dealt with. I want to give a definition of sin that I was thinking about as I was looking at this and put up on the screen. Basically this. Sin, fundamentally, is an attempt to remove or erase the image of God in ourselves. At the root of who we are as human beings, God created us in his image, in his likeness, and therefore, there's an element of dignity, value, and respect in us as human beings. This is why we ought to treat other human beings with respect and dignity and value, because they are image bearers of God. This is why any type of attitude of mistreating other people or a man taking advantage of a woman or one race taking over, suppressing another race, is simply False and wrong and should not be done because we bear the image of God in us. 
Albeit we're marred, we're sinful, we're broken, and what sin is at its elemental root is us as human beings seeking to remove the image of God from our lives by doing all sorts of things, by running away, by distancing ourselves from God. One of the best examples of this can be found, I think, in one of the best Hollywood movies that sort of depicts this of all time, the theological movie called Toy Story. All right, some of you might be familiar, right? I'll show you the next slide, and I'll, I'll explain this in a second here. You guys know that the, I, you know, when I was kind of looking at the story, the kind of the, the baseline of the story is about Woody, right? He is sort of this, this, this character that Andy, his owner, loves. And what does Andy do? He puts his name on the bottom of his boot. He belongs to Andy. And this gets played throughout the whole storyline. And there's different, and I don't know how many toy stories there are, but, you know, one of them is sort of this, you know, Andy's 17, all right? And he's no longer a little kid. He doesn't play with, you know, Woody anymore or Buzz Lightyear anymore. He's 17. He's about ready to go to college. And he's kind of looking into his toy box. He's like, what should I take? And what should I get rid of? And he sees Woody on the top, holds Woody up, and holds, you know, Buzz Lightyear. He's like, what should I take? He's like, I like them both. And he's like, I'll take Woody. Looks at the little name carved on the bottom of Woody's foot, puts it in his box that says to college. All right, if you want a freshman here, you brought Woody along with you, that's cool, I guess. But the point of the matter is this. What ends up happening are the rest of the toys he puts into a plastic bag that he's about to put up in the attic, but ends up those plastic bag gets taken out to the trash or you know, gets taken out to some other place. Anyways, in the bag, what happens is Woody's trying to rescue these guys, bring them back into the house, bring them back because he's convinced that they're not meant to be thrown away, but meant to be brought up in the attic. There's this dialogue that's going on between Woody and one of the new toys, this guy named Lots of Huggin. And here's what he basically says, all right? This, this guy, if you know anything about this guy's history, it's pretty shady, all right? But here's what he says. <laughs> he says, no, mat, no owner means no heartache. No owner, comma, should be there, means no heartache. We don't need owners. We are our, our own owners, masters of our own fate. This is like, this is like the, the, the motto of the world in which we live in. We don't need a master. We are our own master. We don't need to have the name carved in our foot by any owner. To have that means that we have restrictions. That means that we have limitations. That means that we are bound. But this is the lie that we believe. The lie basically, in essence, says the way to freedom is independence. For me to be my own master, the way for me to have true life, to have true joy, to have true security, to have true freedom, is by moving away from any type of restraints of religion or God. What we're in essence trying to do is to remove, to rub out, to take away the imprint of the image of God in our lives. But if God is who God claims he is, meaning if God is life, if God is love, if God is joy and comfort and peace and all of these things embodied in God, then this would mean that the further we get away from God or the further we try to move away from God, we are not becoming more free. We are becoming more bound. We're not becoming more filled with peace. We're becoming more filled with anxiety. If God is who God claims he is, the more we seek to try to remove ourselves and distance ourselves from our maker, the more dehumanized, the more farther away from his purposes that we become. We don't find more life, we find less of it. And this may be where some of you are at today. Maybe some of you, in your life, in your experience, what you've done is you have resisted, you have fought, you've 
felt, you see, no matter what you can do, you still realize that there's some form of imprint of God in your life, and that frustrates you. Some of you may have been living this even in your own family. You bear a family name. You don't like your mom. You don't like your dad. You found yourself at odds with them, and there's a tendency oftentimes for kids like that to move away from mom and dad and say, I don't have anything to do with mom or dad. I don't want to do the career, the vocation that mom and dad did. I don't want to act the way mom and dad did. I don't want to think the way mom and dad. I don't want the religion that mom and dad had. But if we take that same attitude and try to move ourselves away from our creator, God, we find ourselves in places of being bound. Bound by sin. Bound by destruction. The irony of the whole story of Toy Story, that bag of toys, as they're on this journey of like getting farther and farther away from Andy, they don't get into greater life. In fact, it kind of ends in this incinerator. Literally in this big fiery incinerator where that's where they're all heading. I don't know if the guy who wrote the story was a Christian or not, but it's profoundly amazing when you just look at the whole story. In other words, the more they got away, I'm not going to go anywhere. Watch the movie yourself. So here's the thing I want to finish with is this. Jesus ultimately wants to rearrange our loyalties. Because if we give ourselves and devote ourselves to loyalties that are broken, they'll ultimately end up breaking us. And what Jesus has come to do is to free us from that brokenness, to set us free, to give us life. That's what he's come to do. So how does Jesus rearrange these loyalties? Maybe what we should do is kind of ask this question or questions. One, how can we rightly order our loyalties? How can I rightly order them? Maybe I can understand and see that there are certain loyalties, things that I realize I've been giving my heart to, I've been giving my life over to that have not been setting me free, not been bringing me greater freedom, not been bringing me greater life and joy and substance, but actually been bringing oppression and destruction upon me. How do I get out of this? The second question might be, why would I even want to give back to God that which belongs to God? Because oftentimes any type of accepting another person's authority over you, you never know what you're going to get. Right? Any first century Jew who says, Caesar, you're my Lord, you get a grab back. You don't know what you're going to get. You don't know if Caesar's going to be nice or he's going to be cantankerous that day. You don't know if he's going to be helpful and want to seek your best interest or if he wants to cut your head off that day because he's a little bit nervous. You don't know what you're going to get with the guy because he's not a good master. So how do we know if Jesus is a good master? How can we trust his intentions? If he claims to be God, if he claims to be the King of kings, the Lord of lords over all, how can we trust his intentions? This is the issue where Mark is ultimately going to take everything throughout the entire gospel to the very end because two things we can see as to why we can trust Jesus and give our hearts over to him. First and foremost is because you are an image bearer of God. You can't free yourself from that. You can try. You can attempt. C.S. Lewis has basically written an amazing book on this. He tries to address these issues, but these are the issues that oftentimes we try to do. We try to rid ourselves move ourselves away from the fact that God made us. We don't become free, we become bound. You are made in the image of God. You belong to God. But secondly, how can I know that this God intends my good? That's the question. Because if I give my heart, if I give myself, if 
If I give my life in its entirety over to somebody that does not seek my best intentions, they may crush me, they may crush my heart, they may destroy me, and I will be broken. And that's where some of you are at. You've given your hearts away to people, and they've crushed you. You've given your hopes away to hoping that a job would somehow give you the peace and the life that you've intended, and it's crushed you. You've given your heart away hoping that somehow buying a house is somehow going to get you into the game of security, and you lost your house. You've sold yourself away to buy a business thinking that somehow will bring you security financially, and it's crushed you. You're in bondage. How do I know, how can we know that this God will not treat us the way every other false God does? And the answer is we're going to see by the end of the book that what we're going to see with this Jesus is this Jesus lays aside his crown of righteousness, comes into this world, bears a crown of thorns, the crown of thorns that you and I deserve to bear, so that we who only deserve a crown of thorns can be given a crown of righteousness. That this king leaves his throne, leaves his home, so that we who are by all intents and purposes orphans living in this world without no father can actually be given a father and thus be given a home. Every false god, basically, his motto is this. Your life for mine. If you're in that type of a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, for example, if you kind of get this idea that your boyfriend kind of looks at you as he's taking something from you so that he can have joy, could be sex, could be anything, somehow as if he is leeching off of you and therefore getting life from you. The exact opposite is true with Jesus. Jesus says, it's not your life for mine. Jesus says, it's my life for you. Jesus says, I will give my blood so that you don't have to. I will give my life so that you who know nothing but death can be given life. This is the picture of Jesus. Someone that does this willingly lovingly someone you can trust. You can trust this Jesus because of what he's done. And secondly, because you are his image bearer. He loves you. I want to finish. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond. And what I want to do is to the degree to challenge you with this because really to the degree that you see that this is what Jesus did for you, to the degree that you see that, to the degree that you believe that, to the degree that you're changed by that, you will be able to do rightly what Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 says, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. To the degree that you see that this king is not just some foreign dignitary who makes great laws, who's very distant and far off, but to the degree that you see that this God came near and paid the greatest price for you because he loves you to the degree that you see that that will rearrange the loyalties in your heart and you will become loyal to him and you will worship him and you will love him and you can give him your heart and he will heal you. He will set you free. We're going to sing. We're going to respond. We'll partake of communion. We partake of communion as a way of reminding us of what Jesus has done. If you're here and there's anything at all that's going on in your life, you need prayer. Some of you, at some point, maybe God's been speaking to you and there's areas in your life that you realize you need to relinquish, surrender, give back, and you want someone to pray for you, uh, I'd invite you to come on up over by over here by the cross. We have, we'll have some people over there who'd be happy to pray with you. Some of our community group leaders be there to pray with you. 
and we're going to sing. My challenge that I want to throw out to you is that if indeed Jesus is king, what does right worship in terms of response to him look like? How, how should our voices be affected by that? If he really is king, right? I mean, football season started, right? Some of you guys are like, yeah, football. You scream at a television. You come to church and you're like, Jesus. It's like, if he's king, I mean, if he is king, and he's not just a king, he is a king who loves you. He loves you. How should that affect the way that we sing? How should that affect the way that we use our hands and our bodies and our lives and our money and everything if he truly is who he claims to be? And he's demonstrated on the cross. That should affect everything about how we worship. So I'm going to invite you to worship this king accordingly to his greatness. Why don't we all stand? Like I said, if you need prayer, just come on to the front. There'll be some people up here to happy to pray with you. Let's sing in proper proportionate response to who God is. Let's lift our voices loudly. Let's raise our hands to him. If he is not just simply some foreign dignitary, but he's a God who's a father, he loves us, that means that we can actually raise our hands to him as a daddy. Like a child raises their hands to their daddy because he loves us. So I want to invite you to use your bodies as an instrument. Use your voice as an instrument. Use your bodies to raise to him, to sing to him, to get on your knees if you feel like you need to, to, if that's going to be the right response for your heart to offer him the worship that's due to him. So I invite you to that. I'm going to pray, sing, partake of communion, be prayed for if you need. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We want to rightly respond to you even right now because you're a good God who loves us.